This is episode 535 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When a football team with great potential continually suffers loss after loss after loss, often the coach will bring the team back and focus on the basics, the fundamentals of their sport. They will practice and basically have to relearn, almost like muscle memory, those things they didn't even know they had forgotten. Running, tackling, blocking, special teams, you get the point. But the same holds true in our spiritual life. It is good to pause from the chaos in our culture and simply look back, to remember what we know about God and His character, how He's been so faithful to us in the past and will be forever how He redeemed us in the midst of our sin, how He now lives in us and gives our life value and purpose, and how much He loves us, how incredibly much indeed. Join us today as we simply look back on some truths about God that we may have forgotten in these turbulent times in which we live, and in doing so, we can rekindle our faith and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, we have uh, talked about quite a few things over the last six or eight months. We've uh, dealt with various subjects. You may sometimes view those as independent. They're not. They're all connected. We're all moving to a point here that the Lord has laid out for us. But uh, it became clear to me this week as I was studying that we need to take a little time today and just take a deep breath and look back on where we've been the path that we're on, what we've studied, and what we're trying to find out about God and where He's taking us. Again, we're living in very strange times. This week I had an opportunity to talk to a number of people, uh, many of you uh, and others, and it is shocked. I'm shocked at how powerful Satan is really trying to destroy the church. I mean, people that I've talked to are struggling with personal relationships, are struggling with health problems and uh, decisions that they need to make, and there's the, the only decisions they have is between bad and horrible. seems like that uh, Satan is attacking the church. He does that by attacking individuals, and when he can attack enough individuals corporately, that means the entire church. And uh, it, is, it is what we were promised would happen, but sometimes it catches us with our guard down. Sometimes it catches us unaware. Sometimes we're so busy just with life. Raising kids, paying bills, you know, making a living, trying to just survive in this world that we get so focused on other things that when he attacks, it has a tendency of just knocking the wind out of our sails. And so I'm hoping today this will be an encouraging message to you as we go back and look at some truth that we've covered in detail over the, uh, the last six or eight months. And the first one is this. Oh, I know God is sovereign. No, no, really. Think that through for a second. I almost was tempted to play that uh, famed recording, and I can't remember who the pastor was, called He's My King. Do you remember that one? He's my king. Let me tell you about my king. And he goes on to talk about all these attributes about Christ, and when you listen to that, it just overwhelms you with the fact of how big he is, how sovereign he is. He is sovereign. There's nothing greater 
Nothing higher, nothing more powerful. There's nowhere else to appeal than God. He's eternal. He's everlasting. His kingdom does not go away like other kingdoms. He's never voted out of office. Somebody doesn't usurp him. He is sovereign. And when you realize that there's nothing greater or higher than God, then you rest in the fact that he created everything. I spent some time this week just looking up pictures of uh, our solar system and our galaxy and this artist's rendition of what the rest of the universe must look like and how small and minuscule we are, our, our galaxy, not just our solar system, our galaxy is to the totality of God's creation that he spoke into existence, that he just thought, boom, and it was there, that it was nothing to him to create something we can't even comprehend with our mind. And then you take it down to the, you know, the very smallest, minute part of his creation. It's, it's amazing how God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is incredible. And everything he created, he created in order, he created for good, and he created for a purpose. After the first day, the morning and evening of the first day, God saw it was good. Second day, good. Third day, good. Everything is good and for a purpose, which means he created me and created you for a purpose. In the vast creation of God, in his sovereignty, when he could have done anything he wanted to do, he created this I can't even describe how big it is, universe, and our, and our, our, our the galaxy and our universe and the, you know, our solar system and our planet Earth and, and Deland, Georgia on March 7th, 1955, this woman gave birth to this kid named Steve McCranian, and he cares about the hairs on that person's head. Why should we worry? Why should we fret? Because our God is incredible. And if it's true that he created us for a purpose, then the greatest thing we can do, the most important thing we can do, is to figure out what that purpose is and to align our life up with what God has planned for us. No, I want to call my own shots. I want to go my own way. I want to do what I want to do. And we have a world full of people who have that mindset I had had that mindset. Sometimes I still have that mindset, seeking happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in things other than what I am in him. And you find that all is just shallow, shallow. I, um, I have a relationship with this cat that just showed up at our house about a year ago. Um, with a cat, of course, the relationship is based on the cat's terms. You do realize that, right? It's not like a dog. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I can, can communicate to the cat, and the cat somehow communicates to me when it wants something to eat or, or wants to be petted or something of that nature. I have no relationship with a ladybug. I have no relationship with an ant. Don't even know how to communicate that. Or when a wasp flies around, we have a relationship with a wasp because we usually run, right? But the fact is that God, infinite, infinite God, decided, decided that he wanted to have a relationship with us. Not a ladybug, but with us. And he placed in us 
something that allows us to hunger for him and desire him and communicate with him, that we can pray, we can talk to him, we can feel his presence, we can experience his power, and so much so that he sent his son on the earth to die for us so that the sin that keeps us from having a relationship with him can be eradicated and atoned for by the blood of his son so that we can spend eternity with him, and he is excited about that. He wanted that to happen. That's part of his purpose for us. Sit back at your desk and just go, wow, I mean, I I know that's true, but I've never really taken the time to think about that, that what a, a blessing it is, a blessing that I take for granted, a blessing that I don't avail myself to as much as I should, the ability to pray and fellowship with God, so much so that when I don't know how to pray, he leaves in me himself in the person of the Holy Spirit who prays for us. What greater thing in life is better than that? Yet that's what our creator decided to do but he's actually more than a creator. Not only is he sovereign, but he's also a king. We've spent a lot of time over the last six months talking about the kingdom of God. He is a king, and if he has a king, he has a kingdom. And there are people in his kingdom, and there are people outside of his kingdom. It's that way with any kingdom. If, uh, you know, if we're either serfs that aren't part of the kingdom or we're citizens of the kingdom, and even better than being a citizen of the kingdom, would actually be part of the inner circle of the king, maybe like a close friend or, or, or a distant relative or a family member. And as a family member, the closest would be a son or a daughter. And in God's kingdom, he rules supremely. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow. Nothing happens that he goes, wow, I had no idea. I'm worried about that. Let's let's react to what's happening here. God is sovereign. Everything Satan throws your way, everything Satan does, falls up under the permissive will of the king because Satan is like this angry dog that's on a chain that his master, the king, won't let him get any further than that chain. And if you come within the circle of that chain, you'll get bit. But as long as you stay outside of it, you're protected by the power of God, protected by that chain. Everything that happens to you does not take God by surprise. Everything that happens to our nation, the direction our culture is going in, what will become of the church does not take God by surprise. And the good part about it is he tells us in advance what we can expect. So there are two types of people. We have that in our country today. You have those that are citizens They're either born citizens or they have to go through a process to become naturalized citizens. Or you have people who aren't citizens, and if our country was run properly, there'd be a distinction between those two. Citizens get benefits, non-citizens don't. There's an advantage to being a citizen that a non-citizen doesn't have. And a non-citizen will work really hard to make themselves profitable to the nation, so the nation would then place upon a non-citizen the 
the privilege of being a citizen and allow them to reap the benefits of being part of a country. It works the same way in God's kingdom. And God, for some reason, has allowed us to be citizens in his kingdom. Citizens with all the privileges and the rights that come from that. But we didn't earn it. We didn't have to go through classes for that to happen. It was given to us by just grace and just mercy and not on our own merit. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we have been, everything we are becoming is based on the mercy and grace of God given to us because he loves us. So I... um. Uh, He didn't look at my Facebook post and go, wow, that's really cute. You can be on my team. No. No, he saw me in my depravity. While I was yet a sinner, at that point of my lowest debauchery, when I was the furthest away from him I could possibly, when I was most undeserving of salvation, it was at that moment Christ died for me and for you so that you and I could have entrance into his kingdom. And as a member of his kingdom, as a citizen, just like in our country here, there are certain rights and there are certain duties and there are certain responsibilities. We thank the, uh, the king for granting us citizenship. We pay taxes. We're obedient to the king, yet the king protects us. The king feeds us. The king makes our life safe in the kingdom, at least in a perfect world like the kingdom of God. These are things that have been granted to us. You know, salvation is more than just the sinner's prayer. Um, And, you know, I I am prayed right now. What does that mean? Oh, it means I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And what does that mean? It means that I guess all my sins are forgiven, and so Jesus lives in me, and, you know... uh, it's just I need to go to church and read my Bible and tell other people about that, and it's, it's really great. And all the benefits of salvation are when I die. They're out there somewhere. No, the benefits of salvation began the moment, or you began to experience the moment justification took place. Because you begin to experience the power and the love and the joy and the peace the spiritual gifts that he allows us to bear for the Father's glory, like it talks about in John 15, the, the victory over sin, the ability to be part of God's salvation process where he sovereignly elects, but he wants us to be the one to witness and share that message. So we're part of that consummation act that began eons ago when God called people into a relationship with him. But we get the privilege of seeing that birth take place. It's, uh, it's incredible. Yeah, but what about the responsibilities? What about obeying the king? What about the king being sovereign and I'm not able to do the things that I want to do? What if I don't do all the things the king wants me to do? What if I fall out of favor with the king? What if I just can't measure up? Maybe his requirements are too hard. And then you realize that the power to meet those responsibilities, the power to do the duties, to be witnesses, to rejoice always, to trust to have faith and not to worry, as Justice talks about today, that he actually gives us the power to fulfill the mandates of the king. 
And all we have to do is rest and abide in that. Where does that power come from? Well, it comes from the king himself. You know, if you really sit down and think about it, probably the greatest blessing ever that we have a tendency of not talking about that much is the fact the Holy Spirit lives in you and lives in me. Oh, I know the Holy Spirit. He's the deposit guarantee of my future inheritance to come. I know that. Holy Spirit comes into my life and begins this regeneration process. Oh, yeah, I learned all about that in Theology 101. No, no, think about that. Think what that means. Jesus said in John 14 that he would not leave them as orphans, that he would come to them. When he talked about in a chapter earlier than that, uh, going away from them. And he said that he was going to send them himself, another just like him, to abide with us, to rest with us forever. Well, who was that? It was the spirit of truth. It's the Holy Spirit. If you've, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What's the Father like Jesus? The Father's like me. Have it been when you so long, Philip, John 14, that you don't recognize that? How can you say to me, show me the Father and it will be enough? So the Father's like Jesus. Yeah, well, what's the Holy Spirit like? Like Jesus. I'm going to send you another just like me because they're all the same yet separate. So the Holy Spirit rests in us. The power of the Godhead lives in you. All the gifts, all the wisdom, all the understanding, all the sovereignty that is out there on the throne of God, whereas someplace in heaven, that entity lives in you and lives in me. A power greater than anything. Greater is he living in you. Do you remember that verse? Than he who is in this world. Whatever we're faced, whatever temptation, whatever trial, whatever, whatever could possibly happen to us by a little K king in this world, what lives in you, not out there, but lives in you is greater than that. If you just took a day and just meditated on that and thought about that and examined the implications of that, it would radically change your view of God and who you are. It means the king is always with us. We're never alone. We're never as orphans, as Jesus promised in John 14. I will come to you. I will not leave you as an orphan. I will always be with you. How? When the spirit of truth comes to live in you, he will be in you and with you forever. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it's better for you that I go to heaven because once I go, I will send someone to you who transcends physical time and matter and space. He lives in you. You sleep, he's there. You wake, he's there. Well, what am I supposed to do? I've been arrested and I'm getting ready to go up before my tribunal. I don't even know what to say. He's in you. And Jesus promised in that hour, he will tell you exactly what you need to say, do you remember all that? So what can the world threaten us with? What, what could possibly happen to us that's greater than our king, who's not out there, but is here in us? What in the world could we possibly fear or worry about or fret about or chew our fingernails about? Our king empowers us. 
by living in us. Our king protects us. But if that's not enough, our king also loves us. It's it's hard for me to imagine a king loving anyone because all the movies we've seen about kings, all the human examples we've seen about King Henry VIII and people of that nature, they're selfish, they're narcissistic, they don't particularly love their wives, they they, have strange relationship with their kids, they do everything they can to maintain power. So we kind of view a king that way, but this king loves us supremely. He's not intimidated by us like Herod the king. He's not going to kill his brothers and even his own children because he's afraid they're going to usurp his throne. None of that happens with our king. Our king loves us supremely, so much so that instead of being a citizen, he decided to take us one step closer to him and adopt us as his son. And not only that, as an adopted son, he's now going to lavish upon us, Romans chapter 8, an inheritance which makes us a joint heir with his true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that passage? Who loves you more than that? Your father? Don't think so. I am incapable of loving my kids as much as God loves me. I, I don't... It's beyond my, I think it's beyond human ability to be able to do that. And yet God does that for us. Why? Well, because when you come in the presence of a king, you come with bended knee and you come kind of fearful and you don't want to meet the, key, the king eye to eye. You don't want to do anything to intimidate the king. You're, you're not, you know, you're, you just go in and you, you, you want to say everything as quickly as you can, and you back out, but you don't turn your back on the king because that's offensive to a king. So you back out and bow and all that kind of strange arm-length relationship with the king. But God says, no, I'm not, not only, I'm not only a king and a sovereign God, but Jesus reveals to us that he's our father, our father, the person we should feel most secure with the person that raised us, the person that protected us, the person we looked up to to model Christ in our family. He is our father. Father has a a love for his children greater than a king has for his subjects. And so God is not only our king, but we are now children, children of God our father. I remember... Um, reading about this. I was too young to care when it happened, but I remember that uh, John F. Kennedy was having a meeting in the Oval Office with some of his um, high-ranking officials like the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State and stuff of that nature. His kids came running in uh, wanting to, uh, to see their dad, and I remember reading a story where he stopped he adjourned the meeting, spent some time with his kids, which really offended the Secretary of Defense. Uh, and then they left because these kids had special access to their father, who happened to be President of the United States. That's who we are. That's what we have. That's what God has given us, which means we don't have to know him as scary God on Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning, and if we look at him, we die. And we don't have to know him as this king where we're constantly bowing down to him, making sure that he's satisfied, otherwise he's going to cast us into the tower. But we know him as father, not a dysfunctional father, not a father like I had, or a father like, you know, maybe 
many of us have experienced, but the best father, the perfect father, that's who our God is. And in doing so, it's not just a mental thing that we have. I'm just going to think of God as my father by calling him Papa and Daddy. No, he invites us to know him as father, invites us to have a relationship with him as father because his true son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, is the one that introduced to us the idea of God being a father. It's like Jesus said, he is my father and your father, my God and your God. This is who we are in him. And in doing so, God has lavished his love on us to make us joint heirs with his only son. I don't know about you, but as I started looking at the, just the direction that we're heading and this understanding of who we are in Christ and who God is, all of a sudden it began to make me feel closer to him. It made me feel like more, I could trust him more, that it's not up to me to try to figure out how we're going to handle this, but instead it's up to him to handle it. And my job is just to rest and abide and trust him. If he cares about the very hairs on my head, which are numbered, not counted, how many hairs does Steve have? Well, give me a second. Uh, so many. No, no. It's forethought. How many stairs does, hairs does Steve have? Oh, bam. Because I already know in advance because they're numbered. When you begin to think of it that way, it allows you to trust him even during dark times. Since God is my father, then I have no fear of coming to him. I have no fear of him saying, how dare you come into my throne unannounced? No, I'm your son. Yeah, come, come. I don't have any fear of that because of who he is. And as his children, we have absolute direct access to him that other people don't. We can literally come boldly before his throne because of who we are as his children. In the Old Testament, the place that God dwelt, of course, was at the Bema seat between the outstretched arms on the Ark of the Covenant. No man was allowed to go in there except once a day or once a year on a day of atonement. And if you did or you treated it bad or you disrespected it at all, since that's where God was, he lashed out on them greatly. The tradition was that they would tie a rope to your uh, ankle on that day of atonement and you would have these bells at the bottom of your tunic. So if you went in there with some sort of unconfessed sin that you would drop dead, they would hear the bells jingle or maybe they would hear them stop, stop jingling and when you didn't answer, they could pull you out, your corpse out, because somehow you offended God. Because that's what God was, this scary, frightening Shekinah glory that came down on a mountain with Thunder and lightning and quaking and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. Even when God met with Moses and he walked out of the tent of meeting and his face shone, no, 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 you, you talk to God and tell us what he says because it's way too frightening for us. But we have bold access to God. Where others can't go, we can because we're children and he invites us to have that kind of relationship with him. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, this doesn't happen to everybody. It happens to those who are known by him. 
having boldness to enter the holiest, the holiest, the place where God actually dwells, but on the other side of the veil that separated God from mankind. How are we able to do that? Because of what God has done for us. He lavished upon his, on us his love by sacrificing his own son to separate, to remove the barrier that separated us from him. Therefore, brethren, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Christ and by a new and living way, this childhood that we have in him, this fatherhood of God, the Holy Spirit living with us, which he, God, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and Jesus now being our high priest that offers these sacrifices, let us draw near, since we have bold access with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, that's Old Testament imagery. This is who he is. He is sovereign. He is king. He is father. And since God is sovereign, I want you to think this about him, it stands to reason that the greatest joy on earth is for us to find our pleasure in him. About 40 years ago, John Piper wrote a book um, that began something that was known theologically as Christian hedonism. It's a terrible, terrible phrase. I think today we call it Christian narcissism. Uh, but what it basically stated was that since God is perfect and the greatest joy, the greatest thing in life is God, that God takes pleasure in himself, which sounds kind of narcissistic to us today. So therefore, the greatest thing we can do is to enjoy God to find pleasure in God, not to fear him and run from him and think he's going to slap us down all the time, but find our greatest sense of satisfaction, our greatest sense of enjoyment, our higher Christian life by surrendering and submitting to the greatest container of joy in the universe, God himself. Nothing is greater than God. Nothing. And so therefore, we understand what Jesus said, that he came to earth not to do his own will, which it talks about in John 6, 38, and that he, he came to earth to only do the things that please the Father, which is John 8, 29. And therefore, as us surrendering to him, bearing his fruit, we're not creating the fruit, we're bearing his fruit by abiding in the vine for the Father's pleasure, for the Father's glory, that it it stands to reason that there's no greater sense of satisfaction or joy or happiness in the world than to live your life enjoying your relationship with your father. True? You talk to uh, somebody who really looks uh, up to their dad, and you say, hey, yeah, your dad just passed away. Tell me some things about your dad. What do you remember about your dad? Oh, I love my dad. I, I remember he took me fishing. I remember that vacation time we drove out to the Grand Canyon. I, what, did, did, you, did you remember the times where he went to work every day at 7 o'clock and came home at 7 o'clock at night? No, I really did. Do you remember all the times that he was up late at night studying to get a better degree so we could take care of the family? No, I don't really remember that. What I remember is the things he did with me. 
What I remember is the fun we had. I mean, we went to the Grand Canyon. He would take me fishing a couple times. He taught me how to swim by throwing me off the end of a pier. I mean, it scared me to death. But I remember that about my dad. Gosh, that's just great. And when you hear stories about that, they're fun times. They're affirming times. They're times of enjoyment. Why is it not that way with God in our relationship with Christ? Is it possible to enjoy Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus enjoyed the Father. And when we go and pray and spend time worshiping him, we find that our relationship with him grows because he should be closer to us than anyone. Once we understand that, then we can begin to experience the blessings that come from having that kind of relationship. That when God speaks, we can hear his voice. In my own personal life, the times that God has spoken to me are always my high points. When I look back on my life and situations here, and God may clearly spoke to me there, and boom, it just automatically brings you to a 10. And then when he speaks to you the next time, it surpasses that. That becomes a, a new 10. But what happens in between those times? I'm not listening. I'm not asking. I'm going my own way. I'm basking in the glory of the last time he spoke to me. But every time he does, they're life-changing, life-altering, wonderful experiences, our high points in our Christian life. Don't you think he wants to do that to us all the time? especially since he lives in you right now? Why doesn't that happen? Well, because it's, uh, as Rocky said, it ain't all sunshine and roses. The world is a mean and nasty place, and it'll beat you down and keep you down as long as you let it, because we have an enemy. That enemy is called Satan. Satan is a created being. Satan is not supernatural. Satan is not sovereign. Satan is not uh, all-powerful. He's not always present. Satan is just an angel. Powerful angel? Absolutely. An archangel? Absolutely. But Satan is simply a creation of God. So much so that during the thousand-year reign for most of that time, he's going to be bound and, and put in his bottomless pit. He can't get out because his creator has placed him there. But Satan is your enemy. And what happens is God, Satan wants to destroy the work of God. Satan wants to destroy your joy in God. Satan wants to take the glory that belongs to God and deflect it somewhere else, like to himself. And what he does is he lies and he deceives, and he tries to make us dissatisfied with our life in, with Christ and try to find our satisfaction elsewhere. But since Satan cannot attack God, think that through. Since Satan cannot overthrow God, he can't usurp God, he can't attack God, at any moment God can say, you're gone, and he would cease to exist. Since he cannot attack God, he attacks those people God loves, which is you and which is me. And he attacks us by using our flesh, using our pride, and using everything in us that Satan perverted for his own purpose that God gave us so that we could freely choose to worship him. How sinister it is for someone to attack the children of the one he really hates. 
But that's exactly what Satan does. Because if he can get you and me to worry, to doubt, to fret, to not trust God, as Justice pointed out today, to be adulterous in our relationship with him, then he wins in his own mind because, oh, God's not as cool as he thinks he is because I have made his children doubt him, doubt his character, try to handle things on their own rather than trusting him. We, we are the object of Satan's wrath because we are also the beneficiaries of God's love. And so Satan comes at us, he comes at us because he uh, wants to destroy our relationship with God, because we are his children. Every time Satan sees us, he must seethe, because we have something he doesn't. We have bold access to the throne of God. Satan does not have that. We have the ability to call God our Father. Satan can't do that. We have promised eternal life in heaven with God forever and ever. Satan says no. But we have done the one thing that Satan refuses to do. We have bowed our knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which Satan refuses to do. He has this insatiable desire for affirmation. He has this pride, and if we're not careful, that same trait in Satan can be turned inward in us, and we can break fellowship with God. The battle, Satan's battle against God, is fought in the hearts and minds of God's children, you and I. And we have a choice, choice to follow him or not a choice to trust in ourself, how we're going to handle this, or trust in him. So did the father leave us defenseless? No. Matter of fact, the father told us he would never, Jesus told us he would never leave us as orphans. We're not all alone. We know he knows exactly what's going on, and he's empowered us. Not that we have to go somewhere and find that power, but that power actually exists in us that he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us himself to live in us, which is greater than anything the enemy can throw at us. We've already looked at this verse. It says, but you're of God, little children, and have overcome them. If you look at the context prior to this, it's talking about the spirit of Antichrist that denies Jesus came in the flesh, this demonic kind of false doctrine going around when John was writing this letter. We've already overcome the power of the enemy, the spirit of the Antichrist. How? Because he, the Holy Spirit, who is in you, not next to you, not around you, not available to you, but in you, is greater than he, Satan, your flesh, the world, political intrigue, the media, the educational system, what social media, others, lost people, whatever you want to put there that's empowered by the, the power of darkness, he is greater than he who is in the world. Greater than that. Once we realize how our battle truly takes place. You recognize these passages. It's been a long time since we looked at them. It says, finally, my brethren, not for everybody, be strong in the Lord. Okay, not strong in myself. No, be strong in the Lord. You're nothing, Steve. I'm everything. Be strong in the Lord and in his power and his might. 
that lives in you. Not your power and your puny might, but his power and his might. How do I do that? I put on the whole armor of God that I may be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. Stand against what the enemy throws my way. Why? Why do I have to worry about Satan? Why do I have to worry about the demonic realm? Why do I put on this whole spiritual armor and I stand firm in the power of God and the power of him? Why do I do that? Because the problem is Washington. The problem is the Supreme Court. The problem is our demented culture. The problem is this woke culture. The problem is Antifa and our government and the world and one world says the problem is all. No, no, that's a manifestation of the problem. The reason is this. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against Biden or Pelosi or people that have a different worldview than we have, but we're fighting against the power that inhabits them. The power inhabiting you fights against the power that inhabits them. Light and darkness, God and Satan, death and life. We fight against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. So how do I fight? Well, you can go through the whole armor thing, and we can talk about that at some point. We have in the past. But it gets to verse 16, and it sums it all up. After all of this, here's the most important thing you need to do. Above all, Take on the shield of what? Correct doctrine? The shield of charismatic, powerful worship? The, the, the uh, shield of megachurches? No. The shield of faith. Faith. Faith in God. Faith and trust in Him. Faith. With which you will be able to quench, not just some, but every single one of the flaming arrows of the wicked one. The imagery back then was they would be going out to battle. They'd have these large shields, this, these, um, I forget what they were called. They're like the size of a small door. They'd be covered with pitch. All of a sudden, the enemies would shoot these arrows at them. They would hold their shields up, and every one of those flaming arrows was stopped and extinguished by the pitch on their shields. Everything Satan throws upon you can be disarmed and extinguished by your faith. Your faith. Your faith in Him. All through the Scriptures, as we've studied, we looked about the importance of faith. Faith here and faith there. By your faith, let it be done to you. Oh, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would be done. Why did you doubt? How small is your faith? Well, faith in what? How do we increase our faith? Well, we understand what faith is. We find that in the book of Hebrews, where pretty much what faith is the confidence or insurance of the attributes of God. He loves me. He is always giving and, forg uh, and forgiving, that he's slow to anger, abounding in mercy about his character. He's my dad. I know him as a father. He's not going to cast me out. He's not going to treat me terrible. He's not going to be done with me. He's not going to abandon me like my earthly dad did. My faith is tied up not in what God can do, but my faith grows when I understand who God is. And the way I understand who God is is I look at what he has already done. It doesn't come by seeing. It doesn't come by proving it to me, God. But it comes by the fact that I know him as father. I'm resting in him. I'm abiding in him. 
I find, I heard a preacher preach this many years ago. I find the most compelling thing about the vine and the branches is that the, the branches, you and I, do not struggle to create the fruit. And I remember this preacher doing that. He, he goes like, it doesn't work this way. There's an apple. That was tough. And I'm going to try it again for a watermelon. It doesn't work that way. That the fruit comes from the entire vine. We're a branch, and our job is to bear the fruit created by the vine, by Christ, for the Father's glory. Resting and trusting and abiding in Him, just like a young child does to their own dad. Can't imagine what it'd be like if a six-year-old kid came in and goes, Dad, are you going to be able to pay that rent payment today? What? You don't even know what rent is? Well, I'm just, I'm just worried about that, Dad. You're going to be able to do that? How are you going to do that? Is going to take your... No, no, it's, it's, it's fine. When a father tells his kids something like, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it, son, it's rested right there. A son that truly trusts his father doesn't come back and go, have you taken care of it yet? How are you going to take care of it? You need to tell me right now because I want to know if you're doing it the right way, the way I would do it. Now, come on, God, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Tell. Stop. I told you I would do it. Trust me. Love me. I'm your dad. Have I ever failed you? Have I ever not done that for you? Our faith rests in who he is and not what we want him to do. Do you remember the message two weeks ago? There's something greater than having your prayers answered? Yes, experiencing the peace of God that passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and mind about who God is. So what do we do? How can we enhance our faith and stand strong against the enemy? Really, in Scripture, you find that the way they did that is they simply looked back. They looked back at how faithful God has been in the past, and so therefore they can trust Him for today. Let me give you just a couple examples. Abraham and Lot have been blessed greatly. The land couldn't contain both of their uh, herds, and so they got ready to separate. And so Abraham said, look, I'm the oldest one here. You came with me. Everything that you have is because God gave it to you because you were associated with me. So I'm choosing first. That's not what he did. He told Lot, he said, you choose. He says, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You choose the cities, I'll take the plains. It don't matter to me, you choose. And so Lot did. And it turned out that what Lot chose was bad. How did Abraham have that kind of confidence? Because he looked back and realized that God said, listen, I've chosen a land for you. I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and when you get there, I'll tell you to stop. And if God can bring me all the way from that area, all across the desert, into this desolate land I don't know anything about, and give me everything, God can certainly guide the choice of where I'm going to go and Lot's going to go. David, how can you fight Goliath. You're just a boy. Yeah, but I killed a lion and I killed a bear. And because God was faithful in those two situations where I thought it was over, he'll be faithful with it. This is just a bigger lion and a bigger bear. It's just a bigger miracle of what God has already done in my life. I look back and I saw the faith I had to stand up against them is the same faith I need now. When they crossed the Jordan River and at the Battle of Jericho, God told them to take 12 stones and just stack them up there representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because in generations to come, when your children's children's children say, Dad, what do these stones mean? Remind them about how I brought you across on dry land and how we crushed Jericho with the most ridiculous battle plan ever. 
And if God can do that and has done that, surely he can take care of your problem now. Beware of the the leaven of the Pharisees. Oh, I think he's saying that because we didn't bring bread. (laughs) Do you remember the baskets, the 12 baskets and the seven baskets? Not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the leaven of their teaching. We have George Mueller, one of my heroes, or Corey and Betsy Tin Boone. You ought to read their account in the hiding place of what happened when they went to the, the Ravensbrook. And, you know, they had a little Bible that they wanted to smuggle in, and all of them were being searched. And so they prayed. Betsy was the one that had all the faith. Betsy prayed, God, if, if you can open the eyes of the blind, can you blind the eyes of those people who are open? And as they got ready to, to be searched, as commotion happened over there, it drew the attention away, and they let him come in. God can do anything he wants. And we think of what he's already done. And when we look back, it gives us faith to face it today. Every one of us have a testimony about how the fact you thought it was terrible, you thought it was over, you didn't know how things were going to work out. And yet God was faithful way back then. And he was faithful just back then. And he was faithful yesterday. And that gives us faith to realize he's going to be faithful to us today. Today no matter what happens. So, as a child of the king, our sovereign God has given us things that we need to be doing. Making disciples of all nations, raising our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, praying without ceasing, worrying about nothing, rejoicing always. How how do we go about doing that? Do we even know what his commands are for us? And if we do, do we know how he expects us to do them? He does not expect us to do them in the flesh. But when we yield ourselves to him, he will literally do them through us. And even if you failed, and even if you've done incredible sinful things, and even when you were so intimate with him that you prostituted that relationship for something else, the fact is it still doesn't separate you from the love of Christ. Read the story of the prodigal son again and realize that there was nothing that son can do. Hurt the father greatly went out and squandered it all that didn't belong to him. But there's nothing that son can do to separate himself from the love of the father. So this is the question I want to leave with you today. How do we engage our enemy and God's enemy? How are we to be light in darkness as we see the darkness getting even worse? How do we help people get free from the bondage of sin in their life? I mean, what are we to do And how are we to do it? And I want to close this, if I can, by just reading to you an email I got a couple days ago from the creator and owner of Gab. Um, He's a very strong Christian, and um, he's talking about spiritual warfare and what's going on in our nation. And I want you to be encouraged by this as I close and read it to you. Here's what he said. Men are men. Women are women. A man cannot be a woman. A woman cannot be a man. Men are better at some things than women. And women are better at some things than men. Marriage is between a man and a woman. We should not kill babies. Children should not be exploited or abused. Men should protect and provide for the family. Women should nurture and care for the family. These statements were self-evident truth for thousands of years. And only in the past few decades have they become hateful or bigoted. Satan is attempting to turn God's creation upside down and invert it. 
Up is down, left is right, right is wrong, evil is good, good is evil. The truth is relative and whatever you want it to be. These are the lies of the enemy. This is the post-truth trash world in which we live in. We may live in a post-truth world, but that doesn't mean that the objective truth, Christ, that has been revealed to us through God's word will not stand the test of a world gone mad. Going against the truth of God's design for men, women, children, and families is like going against gravity. Eventually, you're going to fall back to earth. I was having a discussion with my pastor about these things earlier this week, and he said something that struck me. It should come as no surprise when worldly people fall into the trap of completely rejecting truth. But what is astonished to see is that people who call themselves Christians are buying into the lies of the enemy wholesale without question. Wear the mask. Don't question it. Lock down the church. Don't question it. Take the experimental DNA-altering aborted fetal tissue vaccine. Don't question it. Accept the election results despite of rampant irregularities. Don't question it. Support Congress sending $40 billion to Ukraine. Don't question it. Hand over your guns. Don't question it. And attack, demonize, and destroy anyone who does question it. The rejection of truth by Christians causes those of us who are grounded in God's truth to become incredibly frustrated, even dizzy at the prospect of trying to communicate effectively and wade through the adversary's mountain of lies. This is what the enemy wants, and we must fight back against the urge to stay silent. If Christians are denying God's truth when it's right in front of their faces, we have a big problem and need to course correct correct quickly. The only way to do that is by speaking the truth loudly, boldly, and often. Part of the problem is that we're trying to fight the enemy on their terms and on their battlefields. We are guilty of this, myself included. We enter the adversary's battleground, Twitter and Facebook, for example, and expect to gain ground on land that the enemy controls where they can wipe us out with the click of a button. We consume news and media that is carefully crafted by the enemy and expect things to change by lending them our time and attention. We immense, we immerse ourselves in the culture of the enemy and are surprised when that culture turns on us. If we're going to win a spiritual war, we must dare to stand for God's truth in this post-truth world. But how do we do that? Here's a few examples. Boldly defend the sanctity of life in a world that praises child sacrifice. Boldly defend the holiness of marriage between one man and one woman as God designed. Boldly defends God creation and the unique gifts and roles God has given men and women. Boldly rebuke the den of vipers and their wicked ways. Boldly share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a spiritual battle and therefore we must use spiritual weapons to expose and fight the enemies of truth, including when those enemies of truth happens to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We must lovingly and boldly rebuke Christians who reject truth in favor of political allegiances and narratives who let God and let God handle the rest. Jesus Christ and God's word are the ultimate sword and shield in this war. The mere name of Jesus causes God's enemies to lose their mind. They have no recourse to fight back against you when you wield spiritual weapons against them. To smear and attack you, they will need to smear and attack Jesus, and in doing so, they show their hand. We have many spiritual weapons available to us. Prayer, 
communal worship, fasting, the reading of God's word, just to name a few. If you want to become a victorious warrior in the post-truth spiritual war, the best way to do so is by using these spiritual weapons and gifts at our disposal. Let me remind you of something important, brothers and sisters. We have the power of the one and only Holy Creator God inside of us. Whom then shall we fear? Jesus didn't die on the cross for you to feel good about yourself or live in apathetic complacency as his enemies mock, attack, and destroy truth. He didn't tell us to sit around getting crushed by the enemy waiting to die. We were commanded to make disciples of all nations, and Jesus is waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. So pick up your spiritual weapons. We are are in the footstool-making business, Christian. Let us now turn to the Word of God, our most powerful spiritual weapon, for how we are to proceed in light of these truths that have been revealed to us as we wage spiritual battle in a post-truth world. And here's the passage he shared. He said, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, after you understood the gospel message, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And my question, what exactly is the promise? Continuing. For, a little, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So what does our confidence declare in him? We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done for you and realize our confidence rests in God, not in ourselves. So we're to rest in him, abide in him, and let him rebuke the darkness through us. Amen? Let me pray.